2 Samuel 19, beginning in the midst of verse 8. Now Israel had fled every man to his tent, and all the people were at strife throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us out of the hand of our enemies, and he saved us out of the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why speak ye not a word bringing the king back? Looking at this, I saw the matters contained in these few words, the matters of rupture, reconciliation, and reconstruction, those three items might bring to your mind a much later war than the war, the civil war between Absalom and his father David, pitting tribe against tribe, man against man, brother against brother. There was a a war much later, in fact, about 150 years ago, where it was experienced in this nation, rupture, reconciliation, to an extent, and reconstruction in a degree. I well remember being raised in the North Growing up and being taught, I believe probably back as far as elementary school, about the President of the United States during those trying times, and a statement that he made in a speech in 1858 in a debate with Douglas. He said this, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And I thought to myself at that time, and in that context of being in Michigan, and being in a public school in the state of Michigan, quite north, what marvelous words. What a brilliant man Abraham Lincoln was. It was actually years later that I discovered, after I became a Christian, those weren't Abraham Lincoln's words. Those were the words found in Matthew 12, 25, the words spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ, a house divided against itself cannot stand, which frankly makes it all the more true and all the more relevant, and all the more important. I see some comparisons, as I've already suggested, between that sad conflict 150 years or so ago, and this sad conflict that we've been looking at between Absalom and David, and all those men, all those brothers, all those fathers and sons, and so on, I see a comparison at least, not a strict parallel. For Absalom was definitely 
or rebel. Absalom rebelled against his father. He rebelled against his own people. He rebelled against God. He was indisputably a rebel. I take issue, and this is something of a digression, and I hope you'll bear with me, but I take issue with the Confederate States of America being denominated rebels. And I was pleased to find some sympathy with my feelings, some sympathy even with, even coming from the North. Some items in newspapers and journals around that time before the war actually began. But one congressman, a representative of the state of Maryland, said this, he said, any attempt to preserve the union between the states of this confederacy by force would be impractical and destructive of Republican liberty. Has that not proven to be true? Another in the New York Tribune said these words, if tyranny and despotism justified the revolution of 1776, then we do not see why it would not justify the secession of five millions of Southerners from the Federal Union in 1861. And one more from the Detroit Free Press, 1861, February. Any attempt to subjugate the seceded states, even if successful, could produce nothing but evil. Evil unmitigated in character and appalling in content. And these things all prove to be true. And don't we see them, if I can use an anachronism here, don't we see them reflected in the issues before these men after this battle had ended, after the Absalom's men all fled and Joab blew the trumpet, sounding the end. Don't go ahead and chase them. We've killed enough. Bring it to an end. But now they're standing together, basically asking the question, what are we to do? How do we become reconciled after this horrific rupture? And can the nation be reconstructed? If you don't agree with my views regarding the late war between the states, then I ask you to forgive me my digression. As I've already indicated, I'm a Yankee by birth, but not in my heart. <coughs> or as a bumper sticker I've seen said, and I love it, I wasn't born in the South, but I got here as soon as I could. <laughs> well, what we have here, going back to Absalom, going back to Israel, what we have expressed by these folk gathered around here, basically saying, now what? What we have here, it appears to me, are fond remembrances of the king now, after the battle's all over, after multitudes have been killed, after blood has been shed all over the land, after Absalom himself 
is dead. We find them now reflecting upon, you know, David was a pretty good guy. They have these fond remembrances and they reflect on how the king, David, delivered us out of the hand of our enemies. He was a great warrior too. In fact, he's just demonstrated that once again with his men, through his men. And they reflect on how he saved us out of the hand of the Philistines. How many times? Kind of hindsight, isn't it? Reflection, reflecting back on, you know, things weren't as bad as uh, Absalom led us to believe they were. David's, David's a pretty good king. What do we do now? It seems that when things go awry, as Bobby Burns said, when things go awry, the old ways finally return to our thoughts so often. When we stumble and fall, when we come up against a wall and start reflecting, things weren't so bad. Why did we do that that we did? In Jeremiah, we read, Seek ye the old paths wherein is the good way. And I know that that's not straightly applicable here, but nonetheless, it's a good practice many times to seek the old way. Of course, seeking the old paths in Jeremiah, I believe, is a reference to seeking the word of God. And well, if they do that, and well, if they did that, and well, if they had done it before they rebelled with Absalom, it is a human trait, we must confess, and we're all subject to it. We've all discovered it in our own hearts and minds over years. But it's a human trait to look back fondly upon things that we once despised. When we get our thinking straightened out, as I suggested, when we run against uh, a brick wall, when we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, and we're brought to reflection, we find out that things really weren't so bad at all. It's called nostalgia many times. Nostalgia can be good, it can be bad. But I think in the case of these men, just looking back on David in these friendly, kind words is a good thing. And this is what the prodigal son did, is it not? Remember when he found himself after he had said to his father, just give me my portion. I want it now. Why should I wait for you to die? Just give it to me now. And he took it. His father gave it to him. His father obviously loved him very, very much. And he gave him his portion. And this son took off with it, spent it foolishly and wildly, upon terrible things, useless things, and found himself ultimately in a pigsty, feeding pigs and trying to satisfy his own hunger with the food he was feeding the pigs, it appears. He was between a rock and a hard place. And if we apply that account to ourselves, Many of us, maybe most of us, can reflect on how the Lord brought us to such a place where we didn't know which way to turn. But in his grace, he turned us to himself. 
and the prodigal son stood up in that pigsty and asked himself nostalgically, reflectively, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? They've got more than enough and I perish here with hunger. He began to reflect upon that. The Lord brought him to himself. I mean, he brought the son to his own rational, reasonable, kind, reflective thinking. And then also to this determination, I know what I'll do. I'll return to my father and I'll ask my father to forgive me. Reflection is a wonderful thing. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. Now these men, these soldiers that had survived this terrible battle, they recall the good old days, as we say. They recall the good old days with David. And there's something like those, those folk, except these folk in the wilderness were, we read about them in Numbers 11. They're a little bit behaving like that, except those in Numbers 11 were speaking evil. And it's, re- it's reported to us, referred to in the New Testament, and we know that they weren't pleasing to God. But nonetheless, we read about this reflection, this reflectiveness when things are going badly. And we read about it in chapter 11 of Numbers. And we read how that, how that they complain beginning in verse 4 of that chapter in Numbers, and the mixed multitude that was among them lusted exceedingly. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Now here's their reflection. And it's an evil thing, but nonetheless it's this reflection and nostalgia. We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt for naught. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all except this manna to look upon. Boy, you remember how great those leeks and onions and garlic were? They're considering what they had left. And though their thoughts were evil, evil toward Moses, evil toward God, nonetheless, it's this nostalgia and reflection reflection upon how good things had been for them before they left, and they want to go back. Well, these men, in our passage here in 2 Samuel, they're talking about very likely that they would like to make things the way they were. They would like to go back also. They would like to align themselves with David, this one who who really treated us quite well. And he's a great soldier and a great king. And he saved us from our enemies. He saved us again and again from the Philistines. And they also add, we anointed Absalom. They reflected on that. They anointed Absalom to be king in David's place. But now he's dead. Now what do we do? Our king is dead. We anointed him, but he's dead. So what ought we to do now? What kind of a man was Absalom? We've been looking at him. 
for quite a while. He attracted all these soldiers to himself. Don't you wonder when you see how easily Absalom was able to do that? How in the world he turned the hearts to himself of so many? Of course, it's only fair to acknowledge that David turned a lot of hearts away from himself because of his behavior. But here's this, what's the word, narcissist? Makes you whistle almost. But you know what I'm talking about. The man in Greek mythology, where that name derives from, is the one that was so enthralled with his beauty that I read where he looked into a pool of water and saw his reflection in the water, and he couldn't take his eyes off of himself. And he just sat there looking at himself until he died. Isn't that what Absalom did? Just looking at himself. He loved his beauty. He loved his wonderful hair. He was definitely a narcissist. And the people, evidently, followed suit with Absalom. And they looked, and said, like they looked at Saul, you remember? When Saul was raised up, oh, we want to, he's a head taller than everybody else. We want a king like the other nation. And maybe this man is even taller than those kings. They look upon the outward man. Remember how God told Samuel, no, no, you're looking at the outside. I look on the heart. When he chose David out from among his brethren. It makes one think of that passage in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, we read something of an individual, and I know that there are a number of writers that believe that this is a reference in 1411 through 15, a reference to the devil, to Satan. And they, they believe that Christ even refers to this passage in Luke when he says, I beheld uh, Satan falling from heaven. But I think it's very doubtful but nonetheless, what we have here in, in this passage in Isaiah of this individual, thy pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the noise of thy vials, the worm is spread under thee, and worms cover thee. That speaks of Absalom, doesn't it? Worms covering him, and worms are under him. That's where he ended up. That's how he ended up. And then Isaiah goes on, how art thou fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the morning, and some have translated that Lucifer rather than Daystar, and that's contributed to that false understanding, I believe. He said, that didst lay low the nations, and thou saidst in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit upon the mount of congregation in the uttermost parts of the north. I will make myself like the Most High. In this case, Absalom says, I will make myself the king of Israel. I will take my father's crown. I will take his throne. I will be in the place of him. I will be like him. Is this not an adequate portrait? Not only of some grand Persian king, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar, but is it not also an adequate portrait of Absalom? 
and what attracted himself to himself and what attracted so many people to him. But Absalom was devilish. In fact, we're looking at types and so on. We could, we could suggest very easily that he was David's Judas Iscariot. Out to see his father die. His Judas Iscariot betraying David and desiring his death and plotting for it. Remember that Christ himself spoke about Judas. He said in John 13, one of you shall betray me. And we read also the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. In John 13, we read that of Judas, that it was the devil that put it into Judas's heart to betray Christ. And it's not difficult to imagine, to presume even, that it was the devil who put it into Absalom's heart to betray his own father. But Absalom is dead. These men understand that. They understand that the king they anointed to take over David's throne is dead. And we could say plan A failed. A for Absalom. Plan A failed. Absalom is dead in battle. What they don't understand is that David is plan A. Absalom was just another plan of his own making. Plan B, we might say. David was not plan B. Absalom was not plan A. Even as the church is not plan B in the plans of God, in his predestinating power and grace. As some teach that the church is plan B because the Jews didn't accept Christ and they crucified him. And when they do that, they're suggesting that God made a mistake, are they not? God doesn't make mistakes. And he didn't make a mistake here. And he didn't make a mistake with regard to Christ, his son, the Lamb of God. And he didn't make a mistake regarding the church. But what is their determination? Their determination is, basically, when they say in our passage, what about bringing back the king? They're talking, of course, still about David. What about bringing back the king? Now, therefore, why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? They say to one another. Why haven't we brought that up? Why aren't we considering that? They're asking themselves why they haven't done that. Don't just stand there talking among yourselves. Remember those lepers at Samaria? I believe there were four of them. In 2 Kings 7. And that 7th chapter in 2 Kings begins with a prophecy. God's promise of plenty. It's all, it's all about Samaria being besieged by their enemies. 
and the people are starving to death. And Elisha pronounces God's word and promise to them that shortly there will be so much food available that food's going to sell for a penny instead of you selling cat uh, doves dung for twenty dollars. And there was a man that stood at the right hand of the king that said, if God should open up the windows of heaven, such a thing will never be. Well, such a thing was. And what happened was that God, through whatever means he wished to use, he drove the Syrian army away. They fled in fright, leaving everything, just running for their lives. And these four lepers said, let's go over there to that camp and throw ourselves upon their mercy. We can't do anything more than die. And that might even be better than this, starving and burdened with leprosy. And so they went over there and saw that the army had fled and they left all of these supplies. And they started hoarding it and hiding it like Achan did in a tent and so on. But then they stopped they stopped this selfish plunder. And they said, we do not well. We do not well. We need to go and tell. Go to the gate of the city. Even though we're not welcome in that city because we're lepers, we need to go to the, the gate of the city and tell them that there's plenty of food over here. We're not doing well in what we're doing. And they said this Day is a day of good tidings. Let's take good tidings to the gates of Samaria. Paul says in Romans, the word is nigh thee. This day is a day of good tidings. Of course, Paul is pronouncing the gospel. We are to pronounce the good tidings. Others, even if there's Samaritans that hate us, even if there's Samaritans that won't let us near them by our lives, by our behavior, we are to be, as one of our choruses indicated this morning, we are to be light, we are to be salt. Do we have to say to ourselves, We do not well? Or are we concerned about our neighbors, members of our family, others besides ourselves? Indeed, this day is a day of good tidings. Are we keeping it to ourselves, hiding it in our tents, as it were? God has made us salt and light, and we are to behave as salt and light. Whenever his providence, I'm not espousing, going around jerking on sleeves and handing out tracts. If the Lord leads you to do that, well and good. But I'm not necessarily espousing that, but we are to live lives. And another line I think we sang, live in the light. He is the light before others. We have no idea of how much influence God may have uh, used us for throughout our lives just by somebody seeing our behavior 
and saying, what, what is different about those people? And perhaps they begin to reflect and perhaps they begin to think, you know, somebody in the neighborhood said they were Christians. I wonder what that's all about. And God directs their, their, the avenues of their thoughts, directs them even physically and so on. And he's bringing them to himself. We are to be salt and light by our behavior and our words. If anyone should ask us the reason of hope, do we hold back? Or can we say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And perhaps we are ashamed of it. But these men are basically are charging themselves, don't just stand there. Don't just stand there, say something. Must the very stones cry out before you say something? Before you do something? Before you concern yourself with others? Paul says in, in Romans 10, with the mouth confession is made. These lepers are going to the gates of Samaria they're going to open their mouths and tell them what they found. Bring these good tidings to these Samaritans. The lepers were spared. And they determined to share what they had learned. We have been spared. Are we determined to share in any way that the Lord will enable us to do? Do we feel this compulsion to live that way? To live as light again as we've sung, as we've read, as we've heard. These lepers must now speak. We do not do well. They can't but speak or they can't but communicate this blessed good tidings. We need to speak clearly. We need to live clearly. We don't want people necessarily saying those people are weird. But we do want them to be saying, what is different about them? Why do they do that? Why don't they do that? Why do they live the way they do? And sure, there's going to be neighbors that say, oh, there's that couple, guy wearing a suit and a tie, I guess heading off for church. One of those hypocrites, one of those little fundamentalists or whatever. We can't help what people like that may think, but God may be pleased to use us among our neighborhood, asking us, why do you suppose that they trouble themselves to be up and to be going off, obviously, to church, to worship? To worship who? To worship what? What are they doing? What's different about them? And we need to speak clearly when we speak. Paul says in Romans 10, as we've already alluded, but he says in Romans 10 in a few of those verses, and I remember quite well talking with my uncle years ago after I'd become a Christian, and I know, and I know from others that this is one of the Arminians favorite passages 
Whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord in that soil. Everybody can be saved, whoever calls. But Paul says more than that. He says, what saith it? The word is nigh thee in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, confess what? That Jesus died for everybody? That's not what Paul says. If thou shalt confess Jesus as Lord. Lord. Not just Savior. Lord. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And now listen, and with the mouth confession is made. God gives us an opportunity to speak. With the mouth confession is made. Before our neighbors. Before our unregenerate kinsmen according to the flesh. With the mouth. Again. I don't want you to doing something that is contrary to your conscience or something. But if the Lord leads you, open your mouth like these lepers did and speak. Speak of the one who died for you. Speak of the one who poured out his blood for you. Speak of the one who left his Father in heaven to come down and redeem you. Open your mouth. Cry out. Jesus is Lord. And the words in this Romans 10 passage, confessedly they do say Jesus as Lord. And it's, all, and it's in italics. It's not in the original. It's Jesus Lord. Or Lord Jesus perhaps. But it's still speaking of Christ as Lord. And if we need to support that we can do so in 1 Corinthians 12 3 Paul says wherefore I make known unto you that no man speaking in the spirit of God saith Jesus is anathema and no man can say Jesus is Lord no italics no man can say Jesus is Lord but in the Holy Spirit can we fairly turn that around and still retain truth. Those having the spirit of God. Will say Jesus is Lord. When we've got men. Claiming to be preachers. That are saying otherwise. We need to be living before others. We need to be living in a way. That they will understand. That Jesus Christ. Has been made both Lord and Christ. Say something. Sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul said elsewhere, and Peter said, Jesus is Lord. It needs to be done. We need to do whatever the Lord might set before us to do in order to cast down this lie that's been abroad too long. 
that someone can have Christ as their savior, that they can participate in the blood, but that they don't have to bow down to him as Lord. Blasphemy. This thing began in my experience under what was called the carnal Christian theory. I don't know if any of you are old enough to have ever seen some tracks with the four spiritual laws and even stick figure drawings and so on in that track showing how that, that here you are without Christ and, you're, and, and, and he's on the outside looking in and he wants in. He's knocking at the door, he wants in. And you can invite him to come in. So the next picture is is this Christian who's invited him in. The problem is that the Christian is still on the throne in that picture. And then the third picture is the real Christian or the serious Christian or the truly sanctified Christian and Christ is on the throne. But what about this other guy? Oh, he's one of those carnal Christians. He's one of those carnal Christians. And they've resuscitated that teaching with this lordship controversy that you can have Christ as Savior without (coughs) embracing him as your Lord. Balderdash, folly, blasphemy, lies. They call it open theism sometimes. Somebody equated that with another term, dynamic omniscience. Either God is omniscient about what's going on or he's not. You can't put any adjectives in front of that. It's omniscience. God is absolutely knowledgeable of all things. He doesn't have to wait for something to happen like we do before we know it. So they exhort people to put Jesus on the throne in that track and in their teaching. And so what do they have? They have three kinds of people. Do you find three kinds of people in the word of God? Where? The Bible only knows two kinds of people. There's either wheat or chaff. There's anything in between. There's wheat or chaff. There's not stubble. There's not weeds. There's not anything else. There's either wheat or chaff. There's sheep and goats, nothing in between. There's no hybrids. Either you're a donkey or a horse, but you're not a mule. There's no hybrids, and incidentally, mules are sterile, and that's what these carnal Christians are. They haven't been born again. They're deceived, maybe even self-deceived. You're either light or you're darkness, one or the other. There's no twilight zone. One or the other. Either light or darkness. And there's no halfway covenant. There's no in-between that's made by some denominations. There's nothing. There's no halfway covenant. There's no baptismal regeneration. There's none of this confirmation in the middle of your years to satisfy 
something that was done when you were an infant. True biblical credo baptism is confirmation. You're confirming to the world with your mouth and with your behavior. Your determination and desire God given to follow Christ. That's confirmation. There's no halfway covenant. The promise in Acts 2 to you and your children that these people like to grasp a hold of. Do you realize what the promise is that Peter's talking about? The promise is if you repent and believe, you shall be saved. That's the promise. And that promise is to everyone that hears it. That promise is to you and it is to your children. If you repent and believe, you'll be saved. There's no halfway covenant. Jesus said to those two on the Emmaus Road, Oh, slow of heart to believe. Oh, slow of mouth to speak, we might add. God, help us. Believe in thy heart, Paul said. Confess with thy mouth. Let us walk in the light as he is in the light. Let us pray. Our Father, we didn't help you to save us. We didn't add anything. And we can't do any of these things unless thou dost enable us. So we pray that thou would, that thou would enlarge our hearts, that thou would quicken them every day. O Lord of God, that we might magnify thy name before us, that we might be used of thee to build thy church, we pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd stand for the benediction, I've chosen a passage from 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, verses 10 and 11. And the God of all grace, who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ, after that ye have suffered a little while, shall himself perfect, establish, strengthen you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.